Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. For uh, those of us we maybe haven't been able to meet yet, my name's Phil Nauer. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Echo Community Church. I've been here going on 11 years. My wife, Kendra, uh, you don't get to see her as much because she serves as a director of our kids' ministry. She's a public school teacher by vocation and teaches in um, the public school, Baltimore County Public School System um, at Halstead Academy. We have two boys that are turning. Uh, I don't know how this happened. Uh, what? Never mind. I do, but TMI, that they ended up a day apart in their birthday. So I have an, uh, the 10-year-old's turning 11 on Monday, and the five-year-old's turning six on Tuesday. It's been an expensive week for my family, because with very few things anymore, like they were willing to share a birthday party, but that's about it. It's like two cakes, two meals, two everything else. So pray for my family this week. It's just like, you know, but, uh, but we, uh, we love being part of this family, and so glad to get to know you and get to meet you. Uh, some of you for the very first time last week was, I don't know how many of you, how many of you were here last week? A few of you? What an awesome time to celebrate um, with uh, some young men from our youth ministry who made a decision to follow Jesus. Both of those uh, young men who got baptized last week, they're not directly connected to this church through family. They, their inroad to this church was through our youth ministry. And once again, I want to say thank you. Um, over the last 11 years, so many of you have been faithful in being part of this church and investing your time and mentoring and volunteerism and your prayers and your giving so that we can develop and grow to the point where we can have uh, youth ministry and kid men and we can reach into our community beyond what we could do in the high school. So thank you for that. We had like 26 first-time visitors last week, nine salvations. It was an awesome week. Uh, every week, yeah, that's good. That's the good stuff. I don't talk stats a whole lot, not, you know, stats and numbers and some things don't really, at the end of the day, move the needle a whole lot for me, but... There's nothing like having a front row seat to see people experience Jesus. That's just, that's where it's at for me. It's the biggest joy of my life. And I'm just thankful for all of your investments in that process. You know, every week so far this year, uh, we've, we've, someone's been saved in one of our ministries. You know, we gather here on Sunday at 9 and 11. We're here on Wednesday nights for Bible study and for our boys and girls programs. On Tuesday nights, Celebrate Recovery uh, uses the whole building and have a, have a full-blown 12-step Christ-centered recovery program that goes on and are reaching a huge number of people for Christ. Thursday night, um, the youth are here. I stay away from the building on Thursday nights and let them have the whole thing. Um, and we have more and more ideas today. Um, a big group of our people are currently back in the conference room. Hopefully the fire marshal doesn't show up today. If you're here, we love you. Just don't go back there, all right? We had so many people register. Um, I thought maybe 8 to 10, 24 people, I think, are enrolled in Financial Peace University and are back with uh, John and Rajiv and, and some other, Bob, who are working with them to go through all these principles to get our lives to align with God's when it comes to spending and budgeting and just generally lowering financial stress in our life. Is anybody in the room want more financial pressure in your life? If you do, come talk to me later. I'll lay it on you. No, I, I don't. I don't have any desire for more pressure about money in my life. And I realize that when we come to church and you have a pastor talk about money, there's just some weird feelings that go on. And so let's just elephant in the room this morning. I understand um, if I'm going to talk about 
anything having to do with money for four weeks, there's just probably some discomfort about a couple things. So let's just kind of get that out of the way up front. First of all, I know it's weird for you to hear about money from someone who gets a salary, like I do, from working in a church. We have nine people on our payroll here, and so there's nine of us that do draw a salary from Echo Community Church as set by the board, and we are fund- our budget is funded entirely by voluntary contributions. And so I realize um, that there can be some tension in your heart when you're listening to me. You're thinking, of course, I know why he's talking to us about money. It's because he wants job security. And, he, and, you know, quite candidly, it wouldn't take long for us to come up with some pretty damaging stories about how pastors and churches have dealt with money, right? Can we just be honest with each other? Are there some, are there some bad stories out there about how pastors have abused um, the Bible to leverage their own financial gain? Absolutely. And so I know my motives could be called into question anytime I talk about money, and it could be easy for you to kind of click me off. And, and all, I, all I can really do in this moment is just share with you. Those of you who have walked with me for years, you know this already, but if you don't know me, I just want to share with you, uh, with God as my witness, my motivation in teaching the Bible to you is not about how I can gain personally. That's not beneath me. That's absolutely something that everybody who stands up here has to wrestle with. But I want you to know in my own heart, I've settled on this conclusion in my life. Echo Community Church is not the provider for the Nower family. God is. God is my provider. And so I don't look at the church as my source for my income. At the same time, the Bible is loaded with practical teaching on money. And so if I'm going to be faithful to teach you evergreen principles that work in our life, I've got to be able to live my life in such a way that you can hear from me. And so I I want you to be able to know, I recognize it's difficult for you to hear about this, but it's probably only when it comes to giving. And I want you to know this is not, my motivation is not to reach into your wallet and make you feel like you have to give money to Echo Community Church that you don't want to give and you do it begrudgingly with bad motives. That's not at all, that's not at all the point. Giving is just one part of what the Bible talks. You know, the Bible talks to us about budget, about spending, about how we should work, about earning, about saving, about retirement, about debt. It talks to us about a whole bunch of different things. And there are ancient principles that work. And I know, at least if the stats I shared with you two weeks ago, you know, three quarters of Americans that were surveyed in December in a CNN poll are stressed about finances. I don't want you to have to live that way. But I want to share with you truth from the Bible that will help you live with it, live that way. And this, this, the second part of this is uh, why, we, why we get a little bit defensive when we talk about what God thinks about our money. It's because we don't understand whether we're owners or stewards when it comes to money. And if we live with this idea that it's my money you're generally going to get a little bit defensive with any, when anybody tries to tell you what to do with something that belongs to you. Have, those of you that are parents, how do you feel when someone else tries to tell you how you should treat your kids? It doesn't go well, does it? We don't generally like when people you know, get out of their lane. They don't stay in their lane. They want to drive in another lane and tell us, what we should do with what belongs to us. And it's another reason why we don't generally like when we come to church, if there's uh, anger or frustration or just something in your heart, there's a tension there, it's probably because of one of two things. Either who's bringing the message and you question their motives 
or you question God's motives for why he would talk to you about money in the first place. So I'm hoping that in this series, Baby Steps, I, and I want you to be offended by that, right? It's just it's talking about little steps that we can take in our life that are going to bring big peace when it comes to finances. Now, those of you that have already signed up for your free Ramsey Plus membership that we invested in for you, you have access to all of Dave Ramsey's stuff online. I'm not going to use his playbook. I'm just going to talk to you about bigger pictures, lower hanging fruit. And I, I'm convinced that this, this parable we're going to look at today holds within it the very foundation that you and I need to have in order to be able to live a life of peace over our finances. And it has to do with owners and stewards. So let's look at that together. Those of you that would like more detail, um, you can scan this QR code. Every week I prepare for you a much longer document that has all the research that I've done, uh, podcasts that I've listened to, books that I've consulted with, YouTube sermons that I grabbed onto, and a lot of the rabbit trails you can get on, I put it all in these documents so that, number one, you're not here until three in the afternoon. Those of you that want more can have more, and those of you that like feel like I'm full, you don't have to be subjected to it, but there's extra stuff in here, or if you have a question about anything that I taught today, it allows you to at least go in and see where I took that idea from so that you can you know, think about it in a responsible way. So that's available to you. Baby steps. Um, we're going to look at a parable. Now, parable is a fun word. Uh, we like stories, don't we? Do you like stories? Six of you do. I'm going to have to work real hard today. Uh, I like stories. I would rather have story. Any form of communication, if it's a good story, I'm going to get sucked in. I love a good story. Do you know that a third of everything that's recorded in the Bible that Jesus taught, he communicated in story form? I think it's fascinating. He, well, why? He knows we like stories. They're interesting, the plot's good, if we can identify with the characters, a good story is multi-layered, there's different, you can read the story multiple times and look at it through different perspectives and take more things out of it. So we're going to look at one of Jesus' parables today. Now the word parable, we use in the English language to come up with a mathematical word. Have you ever heard, I'm going to nerd out for a second, have you heard of the word parabola? Does that warm anybody's heart? It warms my heart. How many of you are like, no, you're bringing back memories from classes that I don't ever want to take again? Okay. Can you draw with your finger what a parabola looks like, kind of? Okay. It kind of looks like this, right? You've got a, vort- a, vert- a, vort- a vort- I'm lo- what is it? A vertices, vortex, right? Vertex. Why did I say vortex? Vortex is a restaurant in Atlanta that serves that hamburger that has eggs on it. I'm sorry. I'm on a fast two, and you can tell what my heart's missing, all right? vertex, right? So it, and it kind of goes like this. And you end up basically with two kind of parallel, you know, arcs on the end. A parable is meant to be a story that is parallel to a bigger story. So we get the word parable. So Jesus told parables. So he told the first, now Jesus didn't, Jesus lived and walked in the first century in the Middle East. He wanted to explain to people what God's kingdom was like, and they totally didn't know. They didn't get it. And it's hard to tell people about something that they've never seen, that their brains never imagined. The only way you can understand anything on that side is by using something you do know as an analogy to get it. Everything you think about God, you're using analogies to get there. I don't know what omnipotent is. I don't know what infinite is. Is. I can give you a definition. I, my brain is finite. It's not infinite. The only way I can understand anything on that side of reality 
is by using an analogy or an example that I can grab and use that as a trampoline to try and understand that other idea better. That's some deep level philosophical stuff that I'll just leave where it is. But Jesus is doing that for our benefit. He understands if we're going to understand the kingdom of God, he's going to have to put it in terms that we can understand. And those terms are going to be a little bit imperfect, but he's, a lot of ways he, he gave us a parallel story using characters and situations that those first century Middle Easterners could understand. And then he'd use the application of that story as an arrow to say, this is how God's kingdom worked. And what was so amazing about those stories is every one of those stories had a twist because what the listeners found out is that God's kingdom works the opposite of our kingdom. It's the opposite. And so we're in a section, we're going to be in a section of the Gospel of Matthew, which incidentally was recorded by who? The Gospel of Matthew was written by who? Okay, I'm trying to make them easy for you today. Yeah, Matthew. He's in a section where he writes down and records a series of parables Jesus told on the topic of the future. Now, don't pretend like you're not interested in the future. I'm interested in the future. Jesus peels back the curtain. The disciples kind of get to the point where they say, Jesus, how will we know when you're coming back? Now, Jesus could have just said, "Mm, you're on your own on that one. Instead, he talks for a few chapters. He pulls back the curtain a little bit. He gives them a little bit to go on in Matthew 24 of here's some things to look for when they happen in increasing frequency and intensity. But then he changes the subject to not just when when am I coming back, but more how should I live in light of knowing he could come back at any time. He's answering the questions, what should we disciples of Jesus be doing until Jesus comes back? The parable we're going to look at today falls into that. Jesus is answering a question of what should disciples, and what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. You can be a follower of anybody, right? A disciple is someone who wants their life to resemble the person they're following. A disciple of Jesus is someone who, is, who has been saved by grace alone, through their faith alone, in Jesus alone, and now we're on a journey Day by day, little by little, gradually over time of the Holy Spirit fitting ourselves together in such a way that we resemble Jesus' life. That's what a disciple is. So what should a disciple be active in doing? This story answers a little bit about it, and it talks about money. So with that in mind, let me read this story to you. Um, It's in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. My Bible gives it a a title, maybe yours does too. Mine says, Parable of the Three Servants. Do any of you have a different title above this parable? Parable of the Bags of Coal? Gold, okay. Coal is Santa Claus, gold is Jesus. Okay, I got you, okay. Bags of Gold, okay. Uh, Some of you say no because you probably have the same translation that I do. Does any of yours say talents? A couple of you do? Okay, cool. Very cool. Um, I'll explain that in a minute. I'm using the New Living Translation. I wish they would have used talents here, but they didn't. uh, It's not a bad translation to say money. But uh, let me read you the story, and I'll pause every now and again just to make sure that we're on the same page with what's going on here. Again, now Jesus uses the word again because he just told another story, which is a much tougher story to understand. I will leave that for Pastor James one week. Um, Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his, now this is an important word. Do you see that next word? What is it? Servants. 
all, each of the three dudes in this story are described as a servant of the master. That's one of the themes in this parable. You see a couple of them. We won't unpack all of them today. You see a theme of masters and how they relate to servants. Quick question. Could your relationship to God be described in terms of master and servant? Yes or no? Yeah? Who's the master in that relationship? Who's the master in that relationship? Right? Who's the servant? Yeah. Now, those terms weren't offensive in the first century. Could you imagine if in 2023, we decided we're going to bring these terms back again and use them? That would not go well in this society if we assigned responsibility, we assigned titles of master and servant. Back then, that was a normal understanding. Well, in the relationship of God to people, that's one of the analogies the Bible gives for you to understand how you relate to God. He's the master, we're the servant. Can you think of any other analogies the Bible gives you to describe your relationship between you and God? It's not just that. What else do we have? Father and father and daughter, father and son, right? Friend, right? Jesus is described as the firstborn of all creation. In other words, he is our big brother. You also have one of Jesus is the groom and we're the bride. So listen, if boys get weirded out by thinking about being the bride of Christ, you know, girls get weirded out by thinking about that they're the son, you like it. Well, which one of those relationships is the best one to think of? You have to understand them all together. They all express. It's master and servant. It's friend. It's brother. It's Jesus as my brother and I am his sibling. We're co-heirs. There's a, 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 a multiplicity of relationship here. In this story, we're looking through the lens of master and servant. And I will tell you, there's a reason for that. When you understand your role as servant, or I'll use the word steward, you don't get as defensive when someone you recognize as the owner or the master talks to you about what to do with what they've entrusted you. The problem only happens when you feel like it's going the other way. When someone who is not a master to you tries to tell you what to do with what you think is yours. Getting alignment between the way I view money, the way I view opportunity, the way I view spending and saving and giving and debt and all those other things, it's only going, I'm only going to be defensive until I recognize I'm not the master of my money. I'm simply the steward. I'm a servant that has been entrusted a certain amount by the master. He called together his servants and trusted his money to them while he was gone. Now, some of your Bibles use the phrase talents here. Have you ever heard this story in terms of talent? Have any of you heard that before? None of you, just me. All right. Okay, a couple of you, thank you. You were tracking with me today. Um, Now, when we think of talent today, we don't think money. What do you think of when you think about talent or talent shows or she is talented? What do you think about? Gifts, skills, something that you can do. That person's really talented and gifted. That's not necessarily incorrect, but if, you, if I could take you back and put you in the sandals of the first century, when Jesus talked about talent, they would have never thought of that. They would have thought of a unit of weight, a means of exchange. They would have heard it like dollar or something like that. Talent was a measurement of weight, and it was only used in the context of money or means of exchange. All I'm saying is that when Jesus told this story originally, he might have been referring to more than just money, but he wasn't referring to less than money. 
He was talking about at least money, okay? He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, one bag of silver to the last. Now, here's a fascinating phrase to me. You do notice right out of the gate, he doesn't give everybody the same. How many of you have siblings? How many of you are the youngest? You're the fairness detectors, aren't you? We have this built-in idea of fairness, don't we? And I think we have this built-in idea that what's appropriate is that we all get the same thing. It's just not how it pans out. And the Bible's not pulling any punches. You go back to the Old Testament, it's very clear. God gives to everybody. Everybody gets something, but not everybody gets the same. All right? He gives the first one how many bags of silver? You're, well, you were in the first service. You know how many he gets eventually. And in Luke's version, it's a little bit different. And this one, he gets how many bags? Five. Second guy gets. Third guy gets. One. But there's some method as to why God gives different amounts. And I can't go deep into this today. This might mess with you, but I want you to read it. There's some basis for why he gives them different amounts. And Jesus says, he divides it in proportion to their existing what? Abilities. Now, for those who say, well, these talents, God's not talking about my money. He's talking about my abilities. Not exactly. Perhaps generally, but definitely not specifically, because he actually says he gave them money in proportion to how much or how little existing ability that they had. That's very interesting to me. Then he left. Just before we move on from this screen, you need to understand the first century hearers would not have been shocked by this. This would have seemed wise to them. The wisest thing, it's in your notes, you can dig down and see where I pulled this from. The wisest thing for a wealthy owner to do if he was going away and not planning to work for a while, he wanted his lump sum, his money, his net worth, he wanted it to grow. And rather than giving it to somebody that he didn't know, back in that day, being a servant, being a good servant, meant that your owner wanted to give you an opportunity to share in his profit. And the wisest thing that he could do is entrust his money to servants. And you're thinking, why didn't he just put it in the bank? That's a whole other conversation. They're banks, and you can do, there's a lot of really good uh, scholarship on this. The banks back in that day were not like today. You couldn't just go get a CD or put it in a fidelity high rate savings and just say, listen, I'm just going to get my three and a half percent or as it was, you know, a year ago, my one eighth of one quarter of one percent, right? Um, this is, this story is about commercial management. And so he gives out his, a portion of his wealth. He gives five to one that he considered had Comparatively speaking, a high amount of ability. He gave two to another one who had a little bit less but still had some ability and one to the third. And you're thinking, that poor person, I'm that person. Do you know how much a talent was? Now, there's lots of different scholarship. The, most, the people that I trust that have done the most research on the first century say this. A talent by weight in silver, in today's terms, look back then, is at minimum one half of one person's lifetime expected income. 20, if, and they assumed you'd work for 40 years back in the day. It's 20 years income in one lump sum is one talent. Yeah. Would you be disappointed if that showed up in $100 bills in multiple mailboxes for you? You couldn't fit it in a mailbox. 
So don't feel so bad. The initial hearers would have been like, that's still a pretty good chunk of change. But then, I don't know a whole lot of people today who would be responsible to handle that in one check. Go watch the TLC shows about lottery winners. They don't end well all the time. Man, if I just hit the lottery, then I'll be, listen, if you can't manage manage money well now, having more responsibility is just going to exacerbate your bad money habits. Okay. They all had significant money given to them by the master. Now, here's a question. I should have brought this up at nine, but I didn't. In this conversation, what does the master tell his servants he expects them to do with the money? Where, what does he say here? Does he spell it out for them? No. Later on, we find out he does have some expectations, doesn't he? Verse 16. He leaves. Verse 16. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. He's pretty savvy. Now, we have this word, he began to, do you see that next word, invest? Now, when you think of investing today, you're going to come up with an idea a little bit different than they did. They did not have the Jerusalem or the Syrian stock exchange. There was no Amazon, no Google, no Meta, no Ford, no Microsoft, no Zoom. I'm not going to go through my whole 401k portfolio, but I mean, there were none of those things. That wasn't a thing. They would have, the initial hearers would have understood what Jesus was saying is that they, with enthusiasm, that first dude took that five bags of silver and he he invested it in some type of commercial business operation. Now, I also want you to know that that implies risk. He took a risk. But he materially participated in putting that money to work, and he earned five more. So he got 100% ROI, return on his investment. Servant with two bags of silver also went to work, earned two more. Also 100% ROI, not the same amount, but the same return. Third servant, once you know, still goes to work. What's the third servant do? Digs a hole in the ground. And if you're digging a hole for yourself, the first thing you need to, stop, to do is stop digging. But he digs a hole, and he hid the master's money. Now, here's what I want you to see. Two of the three characters in this story really have a good handle on stewardship. And I want to drive this home today. Disciples of Jesus understand we're not owners. We're stewards. We're not owners. We're stewards. If you've heard Bible teaching on money before, you tend to get two extremes. You have one extreme that says the amount of money you have equals how holy you are and that God's intention for everybody is to be incredibly wealthy. We call that, I don't know if you've heard this term before, there's two, a two-word term. Have you heard this? The prosperity gospel. I'm not going to name names of people who espouse this idea. If you look carefully into the lives of the people who teach this, you'll often find that they have a very vested interest in that being right. And they often will use it as a way to explain their own lavish lifestyle and use it as leverage to stay wealthy at your expense. And what they say is God wants everybody to be wealthy Holiness equals the amount of wealth you have. And if you don't have wealth, it's your fault. You're missing out on God's blessings. 
Now, there's massive problems with that, aside from the fact that the Bible does not teach that. Is the Bible not filled with examples of people from every different type of economic class that God blessed and used? Absolutely. But there's another extreme that you'll also hear, and that one, that one is called the poverty gospel. This one says, the less you live on and the more you give away, the holier you are. And if you have material things, then you're materialistic. And so God wants us all to have nothing but give it all away. And that's not consistent biblically. Well, pastor, then where do we land? We reject prosperity and poverty gospel, and we land on this word stewardship. God is responsible for deciding how much or how little money, opportunity, education, talent, aptitude, gift I get. He's responsible for that. He's the owner. On the other hand, I recognize I'm a steward. And so I am motivated to be a good steward of what's been entrusted to me. Now, you're thinking, steward, I don't really, I can't identify with that word. Well, let me help you. You've probably been a steward before. How many of you have ever rented a car? A few of you? Okay. When you rent a car, I'm just going to educate a few of you this morning. You're not the owner. You're a steward. I had to rent a car two weeks ago. My wife, uh, coming home from an event in uh, at Commander Bob's house, uh, she was. We were driving separately, and she was coming back uh, on 147 or late at night, and was driving south. And her car and a large animal that we still haven't found to this day had a collision. And I think the animal was fine, but did some damage to her Honda. And so, because insurance works really quickly, I'm sorry, some of you work in that industry. Love insurance. You're doing a great job. It took us a little while from when the uh, collision happened and when the body work could be done. And so two weeks ago, went down to Maryland uh, Collision Center and dropped the car off there. And they had to keep it for a couple days. And so they, they put us in a, you know, they put us in a rental car. We called Enterprise. They come over, picked me up. And a uh, guy, uh, now if you've rented a car before, you know what you, what you, you walk around the car with the rental agent. And what are we doing? We're looking for any scratch or mark that was on the car when I got it. We're going to walk around the whole thing. Now, when I started renting cars way back in the day, we didn't do this. Okay, but now we do. We walk around the whole car. He has a little diagram, this and that. And then he had to go over a whole bunch. I had to sign my name and initial, a whole lot of stuff. What I was promising not to do, what I was promising to do, they gave me a little talk about how much fuel I was supposed to have in the car. Have you, how, how much fuel is supposed to be in the car when you bring it back? Okay, some of you say the same amount, but I, with me, it was it had to be back, brought back full. And I had an option. I could do it myself, or I could pay them $400 a gallon to do it. I had to sign off on a whole bunch of things indicating that I agreed to their rules. And that if anything happened to the car that made it worse than how I got it, I was, there was a penalty. I also knew that there was coming a day of accountability. I was going to have to bring that car back, and they were going to give it the once-over. I, I wanted to, to not be nervous. Have you ever been nervous about returning your rental car? Okay. Depends how long you have it and how you drove it. Now, character says, I'm going to drive this car in a way that is better than if it were my very own. Some of you don't drive that way. In fact, I was joking around with the rental agent who was getting me settled in. And I was like, he was going over all these things. I could kind of tell, like, he felt bad. He was even having to ask me to agree to some of this stuff. He was almost embarrassed asking. 
And I just, I said, man, I'm, you're in, a, you're in rough shape here. I'm sorry you even have to ask me to agree, this, agree to this, but I'm sure there's a reason why you have to ask me to sign off on all this stuff. Someone must have tried to take advantage of these things down the road. He laughed and he said, you know, just this morning I dealt with someone who rented a car last week who's complaining up the ladder at Enterprise today because while they were driving our rental car, they got a speeding ticket. And they assumed we were going to pay for their ticket because they paid to rent the car. I was like, really, you have people who think they can hop in your car and drive it any old way they want and you'll pick up the tab? They said, yes, that's being a bad steward. Have you ever stayed in a hotel room? None of you? Okay, great. You're making me work hard today, guys. Come on now. Have you stayed in a hotel room? Have you rented a hotel room? Now, I'm going to educate you. You're being a steward. There's rules for how you're supposed to leave that hotel room upon your exit. And I know some of you are thinking, well, Pastor, I carry my own vacuum. I bring Lysol with me. I bring extra quarters to do the laundry. When I leave the hotel room, I leave it exactly how it was when I came in there. Now, that's not the agreement, right? No raising of hands, but some of y'all treat your hotel room a hundred times worse than your own house. It's chili cheese nachos in the bed sheets. I don't even want to talk about what happens in the bathroom. It just, you do not treat it with respect. But here's what doesn't happen when you rent a car or when you sign up for a hotel room. You do not get into a how dare you argument with the people renting you the car or renting you the hotel room. You don't say to the enterprise rental agent, how dare you tell me I can't break the law with your car. What right do you have to tell me how I have to drive your car or fill it with gas? How dare you tell me? You don't say that. Why? Because you recognize they're the owner. You're the steward. You don't complain to the hotel about their rules for how you have to treat their room. If you have an issue with it, you can go find another owner. The reason why you might be dealing with issues when it comes to God trying to help you with your money is probably because you feel like he's getting out of his lane. You don't recognize he's the owner and you don't think you're a steward. Well, I give him 5%, 95% is mine. Guess what? It's all his. Not just your money, you, your body, your opportunities, your life. No, I got every, I got, man, with lots of kids today. Did you feed your kids sugar last night or what is going on? Listen, listen, I've shared this with you before. Let me say it again. Think about this. As talented and educated as you think that you are, as hard as you are, I worked, my, you know, I, everything I have, I made that way for me. Well, what if you were born in Siberia in 1710? With all your same abilities, with all your same aptitudes, would you have the same quality of life you do today? Uh-uh. How much do you think you had to do with all of that? Now, maybe you cooperated with the Lord. You made the most of his opportunities. That's good stewardship. Everything in the earth belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He is the owner. We're stewards. And I'll also say this. He, you're going to learn here in just a moment, there is a day of accountability. You're going to have to bring the rental car back at some point. And he's going to walk around it with you. You're going to check out a one hotel room and you're hoping you upgrade, right? But the Bible is very clear that if you're a servant of the master, no, you won't stand before what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. That's for unbelievers. 
But you will stand before the Lord one day and you'll give an account that will determine your reward. That deserves a whole sermon. I gave it to 9 a.m. last week. I'll give you in a nutshell. Hebrews tells us that anybody who comes to God has to grab onto two truths. You have to believe that he exists. That's kind of low-hanging fruit. If you believe in a God that can save you, you have to believe that he is. But you also have to believe something about his character. You have to believe that he is a, does anybody know? Rewarder. One of the characters in this story doesn't know that the master is a rewarder. He thinks he's harsh. He thinks he steps out of line. He thinks that his master is an exploiter of people, that he's trying to take money out of their hands that he doesn't deserve, that he didn't work for, that he has no right to. Hebrews says, if we come, we have to recognize he is a rewarder. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about believers. Our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And when, we, when, it's, when it's our time to stand before judgment, it won't be, are you saved or aren't you? It will be, here is your gift. Your gift is heaven. But God gives gifts and rewards. You get heaven and presence. The Bible teaches this. This is not crazy theology. The Bible teaches this to us. But your reward will be, term, be determined in part based on God's character and the work that we do here on the earth. You're not saved by your works. You're saved for good works, if that makes sense. And the Bible talks about all that we did here on earth will be tested by fire. And that which remains that was done with purity of heart will translate into reward for us. Yeah, praise God. He keeps good track so you don't have to. He keeps good track, I promise you. And this story reinforces that because we're going to find out that there is a day of accountability. It's not just that he entrusted them with money, opportunity, based on their aptitude. You'll find out his motives for why he does this. Let's finish the story. After a long time. That's an interesting phrase. Let's just jump right into that part. Most of us probably believe, maybe some of us don't, and that's fine. I'm glad you're here. Most of us believe what the Bible teaches is that there is a time when our master is going to come back. Amen? The Bible teaches that Jesus will come a second time. The Bible teaches us that what we see right now is not the end game. That God has a bigger picture he's working on, and it's called family. It's called kingdom. It's called inseparable. It's called eternity. And he's preparing us now for that. But that there's a time when the master's going to come back. And he ca- and if the longer away you think this is, you have a tendency to drift to being much more casual about how you're living. I, I, I grew up on sermons like, if you knew you were going to die today, what would you do different? It's a great question. You can beat that one into the ground. But the point is, If you know you're going to give an account to the master and you have a date fixed on that, you're probably going to be lazy until you, if you know there's an exam coming in two weeks, are you going to, some of you are nerds, you're going to start studying now with me. Others of you are going to wait until O Dark Hundred and then you're going to start studying. We believe in the imminence of Christ's return. It could happen in any time. If you think it's a long time away, you might be lulled into complacency thinking, I've got all kinds of time to get things together. This is me time. And when I recognize I'm getting older on or I see, like, you know, I see an antichrist pop up on the news, I'm going to start getting things together. After a long time, their master did return and called them to give an account 
of how they used his money. Now we find out he did have some expectations. He calls to give them an account. Now, account is part of the word accountable. Have you heard the word accountable before? Do you like that word? Well, it depends, right? Now, if you're the one being held to account, is there ever a set of circumstances in which you'd be excited to be held accountable? What about when you have some, a really good report to give? And you're like, I hope, oh boy, boss has been gone for three weeks and I've killed it for three weeks. Can't wait till she comes back. Boss comes back, you're waiting for her at the door. Hey, welcome back. Can I please have a meeting with you right now and tell you about all the good stuff I did here at the office for the last three weeks? I send my boys once a week down to the soft underbelly of our home called the basement with the assignment to clean it up. And I can tell by whether they run upstairs and ask me to inspect it on whether they hide what kind of work was done. I remember seventh grade way long time ago. And I learned a lesson about accountability. All through elementary school, I got all A's. To be honest, I wasn't challenged that much. I was pretty good on the basics. And when I got to middle school, it introduced this new concept to me of studying My first day of seventh grade in geography class, Ms., not Mrs. or Miss, Ms. Bonnets handed out our textbooks and said, tonight we were supposed to read chapter one. I did not read chapter one. Day two of school, a new term was introduced into my life called a pop quiz. Do any of you know what those are? It means an unannounced quiz for a grade. I was immediately offended. How dare she not tell us about the quiz? Get out your tablet and number one to ten and put your name at the top and here's ten questions. And just by guessing alone, I did get three right, but I got seven wrong. That was a failing grade, my first ever failing grade. And some of us, that doesn't bother us. I was crushed. I was terrified to go home and tell my parents I got a 30. Not out of 31, out of, you know, 30 out of 100, three out of 10. I hated that feeling. And I learned a valuable lesson. That's not going to happen to me again. I don't trust this teacher. She's going to pull stuff on me at all times. I'll show her. I'll learn her something. I started taking that book home every night. And I'm telling you, I studied, I studied, I studied. Day three, I had come back. I was good up to chapter five on day three. And I got to class and I got out my tablet. I'm like, bring on the pop quiz. There's no pop quiz that day. And now I was mad again. She has wasted all my time. You know what I learned? I learned I'm just going to prepare myself so that I don't have to be terrified on the day of accountability. That's a great way to live. When you know, now listen, pop quiz is a really not great approximation for what the final judge, I recognize that. It's a very diluted. But in some ways it's the same. You know there's accountability coming for how we live this life. The Bible tells you that. My teacher said, read chapter one. She told us what was going to be on the exam. I didn't do anything with it. And then I got mad at her for calling me to an account. That's what you do in those moments. When you're not ready, you make excuses and shift the blame to the person calling you to account. I want to help you live in such a way that you don't have to be terrified of the final account. The Bible tells you what's on the exam. He called them together to give an account of what they did with what he gave them. I can't make financial matters any simpler than this. 
God has given us all something generally. And it varies specifically. But at the end of the day, what we're responsible for is to wisely use what he's given us for his purposes so we can look forward to giving a rewardable account on that day. That's what it amounts to. Let's see what he says. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward. He's like, all right, bring on the accountability. Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest. I've earned five more. Now, what do you imagine he did with those bags? Did he just stand there holding them? Well, I don't even know that you could hold 10 bags like this. He probably needed help. What do you think he did with them? And as you imagine this story, do you imagine him giving them to the master? Do you imagine that? I do. I mean, like giving them or piling them up or laying them down or whatever. Now, the master is going to give an assessment. And I want you to look very carefully about what he affirms and what he doesn't address. This will help you. Here's what the master says. Master was full of praise, and now you're going to hear something you might have heard if you've been in church before. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. Hold up a second. Small amount? You know, two and a half times his lifetime expected earnings. Uh, I don't know about your brain, but to me, that's a whole lot of money. It's more money than I've ever seen. It's two and a half times more than I'll ever see. It's a lot. And the master says, that's small. So now I'll give you many more what? Now you can push this parable too hard and you're thinking, really, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be rewarded with more responsibility? I want to retire from responsibility. A servant never retires from responsibility. A good servant doesn't get rewarded with less responsibility. They get more, but you're pushing the parable too hard. He's... It's not the responsibility he's pressing, it's the reward. And he says, let's celebrate together. So two things change right away. He gets a reward and his status changes with the master. Let's share the joy together. We're now shoulder to shoulder sharing joy. So what does he say? My good and what's the other word? Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say my profitable. My savvy investor. It's a character assessment. You're good and you're faithful. And that's what I'm rewarding. Now the second guy comes up and he's successful, but not quite as much, not as many bags. Let's look at this guy. Um, The servant who received the two bags of silver came forward and said, master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest and I have earned two more. So percentage wise, he also doubled, but the first guy brought back five more bags of silver. This guy only brings back two more. But now listen to, to the master's commendation. Master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Does that sound familiar? It's basically a carbon copy, a word by word, the same commendation as this other person. I want to say to you, you might be tempted. Do you know what it means to pocket watch? It means you're very aware of what other people around you have. And you look at it as a way to feel either better about yourself or worse about yourself. Have you ever gotten frustrated when you hear about one of these celebrities or athletes complain about their salary or your money? And you're thinking, you're mad because, you know, like baseball arbitration season is here right now. And one of my son's favorite players, um, he's trying to get a judge 
He says he thinks he deserves $13.5 million a year. The team says $15.5 million a year. They couldn't compromise. They went before a judge, and the player had to listen to the team, give all the reasons why the player didn't deserve 50. How would you like to sit in front of your employer and have them give you all the reasons why you don't deserve a raise? Right? And the player says, I think that I deserve this amount of money. The judge picks one of the two arguments, and the player lost the case, and his, his, prize, his, his penalty was a $13.5 million annual salary. I have a hard time with sympathy. I know, economies of scale. I, I, I get it. I get it. I have a hard time with that. And part of it is pocket. You know, what's that? It's pocket watch. Am I looking at his pocket and comparing it to mine? Like, you should be thankful for what you have. When really I should be saying to me, I should be thankful for what I have because there's somebody that has less than me that's looking at me saying, if I only had what you had, I'd be more thankful. There's always somebody with more than you. There's always someone with less than you. There's only two people in the world that are at the opposite extreme. Pocket watching will sour your heart about God and people. You'll get a warped sense of fairness and justice. But he says to this guy, well done. No, you didn't have the what You might be thinking, what, what I have is so insignificant compared to this person. This person has the wealth to be able to build churches and end crises and all these. This person has so many more reasons. They have so many more talents and gifts. I can't lead in worship. I can't write curriculum for kids. Well, the good news is that God doesn't evaluate you collectively. He evaluates you individually. He's not going to assess you based on my gifts. He's not going to assess me based on what he's entrusted you. He's only going to say, what have you done with what I gave to you? And the person who got five and the person who got 40% of that each got the same commendation. Well done. You've been faithful with a little, and now I'm going to give you more. Let's celebrate. Door number three. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, now I need to be careful here. Jesus is telling a story, and this fictional character is about to give an assessment about what he thinks the master is like. Jesus is not trying to say this is what the master is like. He's saying that there are people who consider themselves, and this is important, who consider themselves to be servant of the master. This is not a story about outsiders. This is a story about people who consider themselves servants of the master. And he's saying this person is a servant with the master, but has this assessment of the master's character as follows. I knew you were a harsh man. Now that's a pretty, I'm trying to think of a politically correct term to say, that's a pretty brazen statement to start off a conversation with your master about. I knew you were harsh. That's pretty bold and confident. I know you harvest crops you didn't plant. Now, in today's term, what would you call if you harvest something you didn't plant? What would you call that? That's a crime. That's stealing. Taking things that don't belong to you. He's saying you're criminal. You gather crops you didn't cultivate. You're profit hungry. All you care is about lining your pockets by exploiting us. You think you're entitled to what doesn't belong to you. You're harsh. And verse 25, he gives you his reasons and excuses are different. That's a whole sermon itself. I'll leave it alone. I didn't put it in the notes here, so just scratch that I said that. He's going to give an excuse. He thinks it's a reason. It's an actual excuse, and Jesus will blow him up in a minute. Not literally, but figuratively. He said, I was what? Afraid. And we're going to find out in a second, he wasn't afraid. He was lazy. 
He says, I was afraid I would lose your money. So I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. Now, before we throw this guy under the bus into the weeping and gnashing of teeth, I don't know why those two things are always paired in the New Testament. Can't have gnashing of teeth without weeping and no weeping without gnashing of teeth. But they're there. They're coming. What did he get right? There's something he understood here that is right. What did he get right? Yes. Here is whose money back? Yours. He still understood that the money wasn't his. And he steps forward and is basically trying to defend his wisdom. I knew, basically what he's saying is, I knew there's risk involved if I put this money to work that it could possibly be that when you came back, I'd only have half or a third. And I know you would have been angry and harsh with me. So rather than risking loss, I hid it. There's all kinds of different ways people try and spin and postulate and hypothesize about what would motivate this third servant to hide his money. Was it because he looked at the other, he was pocket watching and was bitter and thought that what he got was an insignificant sum? Maybe, but the story doesn't seem to suggest that that was his reason. Was it because, like I just suggested, he was unwilling to take a risk? Maybe, but that's not what the master points out in just a moment. Let's look at what the master says in verse 26. The master replied, he's going to give a different character indictment. First two were good and faithful. What does he describe this guy? He got two other words. Wicked, lazy. And you're thinking, where do you hear laziness? He's going to show you why he was lazy. It's almost like the master is saying, well, let me use your testimony against you. You just got done saying you know me so well that I'm harsh, that I'm all about profit, that I'm all about taking from you while I'm off on vacation. I'm going to take from you. If that's what you really believe, belief is reinforced by actions. If you knew that I harvested crops I didn't plant and you knew I gathered crops that I didn't cultivate and you were really afraid that if you didn't have profit, you would have tried to make some profit. Why didn't you at least deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest. In other words, if your excuse was really fear, you would have done anything that you could to make profit. Instead, I know it's only because you're wicked. Now, what made him wicked? It's what he believed about the master. It indicated he did not have an intimate relationship with the master. Only sin and wickedness in one heart would let you get there and then try and fool the master by coming up with an excuse. He was lazy. He wasn't even willing to try. I, sp- I heard a testimony from one of our um, leaders in the Kidmen today, and she told me about a new position she was offered at a local university. She's a professor and was, uh, has just actually started. She was given, um, she interviewed and interviewed and interviewed. She had this opportunity to come across her path to interview at a, at a local university to become the department head of all the professors in her specialty. And she said this to me. She's like, I... It came across, and there was part of it that was so appealing to me. And there was another part that was a challenge because of going from a, a, a public university to private university, even though it was a step up, it was a step back in terms of pay, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the sole provider and this and that and the other thing. And 
I just said to the Lord, I am willing to do whatever you put in front of me. Even if on paper it doesn't seem to make sense, I'm willing to take whatever risks I feel like you're leading me into. Now that sounds like servants one and two to me. Saying, I thank you that you give me these abilities and aptitudes. And I know it might not always on paper look like this, but if it's something you want me to do, I'm willing to take that risk for you, king. The other one just says, I'm just going to bury it. Why take the risk? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. That's not the way banks worked in the day. There's a lot of other background on that. I'm out of time, so I can't talk about it. Verse 28, then he ordered. Now, this is crazy. There's two things here that are crazy to me that I, I don't know what to do with, and I'm glad I'm out of time, so I'm going to just give you a little bit. Then he ordered. This one is weird. Take the money from this servant and do what with it? Give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. What do you do with this? What are we supposed to get from this? There's three servants. They're all having accountability for what they did. Two servants get the gold star. They did well. This servant blows it. And the master says, you know what? I'm taking yours back and I'm giving it to this guy. Not the second guy, but that guy. There's another thing that I'm confused about here. What did the guy with the 10 bags of silver do with his 10 bags of silver? He gave it back to the master, right? Explain to me how he got the 10 bags back. It's almost as though the master had no intention of taking the profit back from his servants. It's almost as though the master cooked this whole thing up as a way to share with them what was his. He was not a harsh profit-seeking man, or he would have said, thank you very much for the silver. Go get to work. Verse 29 explains it. To those who use well what they're given, even more will be given. Pastor, what does that mean? If God can get it through you, he'll always get it to you. And they will have an abundance. Aha! Prosperity. Abundance. That's what I want. Abundance of hundreds, abundance of fifties, abundance of twenties, abundance of house, abundance of car, abundance of clothes. No. You know what abundance means? More than enough. Problem, uh, this is another good one. Problem is you and I don't agree on what enough is. Stewardship begins with being able to have a that's enough fence in your life. But capitalism wants you to have a that's not enough fence. Why do you feel like you should always be getting a bigger and better house? A newer and fancier car. Go interview any of these wealthy people. How many houses do they have? Not enough. How many husbands and wives? No, that's, that's too personal. I mean, how many shoes? Not enough. How many clothes? Not How many vests? Not enough. Not wearing one today. Those of you who don't know me don't know. That's okay. Abundance. All that means is that when you live in God's economy, he'll make sure you have more than enough. But that's both a product of God's provision and of your heart's recalibration to understanding what enough is. Truth be told, I don't have enough. Really? What do you really need? Some of us don't even have that. A lot of us do. I keep going. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now we find out the indictment. What was the indictment? It's not that he did right or that he did wrong. It's that he didn't do anything. He did nothing. He says, even what little they have will be taken away. What to do with this? Here's what I think. Caution. 
you can take any parable of Jesus and push it a little too hard and push it to a place that is not meant to go. So we have to be careful. Sometimes we have to exercise some restraint with parables. You put Every story you put under a microscope, the closer you examine it, it starts to break down after a while. So we have to have some restraint here. Do I think that, heaven, that this is a message of economic redistribution? I don't think so. Here's what I think is consistent with Scripture. Don't the Psalms tell us that the Lord searches throughout the world, that he searches to and fro looking for those he can bless. Hebrews says anybody who comes to God has to believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder. The whole Bible talks to us about God wants to reward you. He's trying to give to you, not take from you. And some of us, the only idea we have about the government, the man, the employer, is that they're out to take from us to pad their pockets. God is not some CEO trying to give himself a bonus at your expense. He doesn't need anything. Instead, he makes no secret saying, I want, I'm your dad. I want to share with you all that is mine. So here's what I think this looks like. If you'll allow me to just share with you my interpretation of this and test it out biblically. If you can imagine this stage piled up to the top with bags of silver. Now, I know oh, this is prosperity. Just bags of anything, bags of Cheetos, whatever you're fasting from, pick it. Reward. God's end game is to give all of that out you got to find someone to take it home. It's like those books we had the other week. We're trying to just take them home, take them home. And God's saying, here's the pathway so you can cooperate in this. Was it God's sovereignty or free will? Yes, both, working mysteriously together. And God's saying, the way that I, one of the ways that I'm going to make this, I'm going to give gifts and rewards, not just all gifts, not all rewards. I'm going to give both. And I'm going to tell you how I reward people. I reward people for being good and faithful stewards of what I entrust to them. Period, end of story. Good and faithful. And even those who think they have nothing, can you take the little bit that you have and work together with other people who just feel like they have a little bit and advance the kingdom? Then you're good and faithful. But my, I didn't produce the ROI that they did. Doesn't matter. That's what they're responsible for. What are you responsible for? I need to watch my pockets. Look, I'm a pastor and a teacher. The Bible says I'm responsible for more than you are. There's questions on my exam you won't answer to. I'll push it one further. There's questions husbands will answer that wives won't have to. There's questions wives will have to answer that husbands won't. It's all in the Bible. What have you done with what he's given you? I have responsibility you don't have. I take it very seriously. At the end of the day, do you know how much is riding on my financial integrity? Much more than yours. Because I dare say yes to being a teacher. And that means I have influence over souls. I can represent God to people. I can do help. I can do damage. And the Bible says, if you're not called to it, don't do it, because we must give the greater account. Yay. But think about it. God has all this reward. Well, what is it? Is it gold? Is it responsibility? I don't know. It's reward that God invented. If it's just a better version of what you can have now, you're thinking too low. Some of you think heaven's just a better version of what the earth is if you just had a lot of money. That's going to be a disappointment. It's bigger than that. How do you know? Bible says, I can't see, ear hasn't heard, hearts haven't entered in the mind. What God has in his imagination. Pavement is the most valuable source of earth's commodities in heaven. Streets of gold. That's asphalt in heaven. Just give you that. Okay? People who saw it didn't have vocabulary for it. So there it is. But God's trying to get all this out. I want to give out my reward. 
and here's somebody who I'm trying to reward. I'm an owner. I'm trying to reward this third person here. I gave them opportunity. I gave them the ability to earn, to exchange. I gave them gifts, talents, aptitudes, fill in the blank. I gave to them. And they don't see me as a rewarder. They see me as a thief. They're almost saying, I don't want your reward. So they've returned it. Well, since they don't want it, I don't need it. Might as well give it out to somebody else. Well, what are we supposed to see? We're supposed to see that God is not just going to give you what you deserve. God's allowed to give you more than what you think you deserve, not based on your performance, but on his character. I hope you grab that. There's two ways of getting rewards in the Bible. One is by law, one is by grace. Law says I get what I deserve. And some of you are thinking, that's the one I want. No, you don't. I want what I deserve. Trust me. The only person who says that has a misunderstanding of what you deserve. You know what I deserve? I deserve to pay for every wrong thing I've ever done. That's called justice. You and I believe in justice. We think bad deeds should not go unpaid. Problem is, every bad deed carries the same penalty. Every sin carries death. Even if I wanted to open up my wallet and pay off my debt to God, let's say I send once a day for, I'm what, 26? <laughs> Plus 20, carry the five. No. You know what I'm getting at? I don't have enough lives in my wallet to pay off. If I want to go by the law, I'm going to be eternally indebted to God. We're going to talk about debt next week. God doesn't want his kids living in debt and bondage. My only hope is the other way that he pays out rewards, and that's by grace. Grace is when God says, you can either get what you deserve or you can get what my character merits. So do you want God to give to you based on your performance or based on his character? I'll take door number two. Application, let me close with this. Worship team, you can come on back. I'll just blow right through these. Because you have the notes anyway. Number one, disciples of Jesus understand that God's the owner, we're his stewards. When it comes to your money, and if you want to expand it, when it comes to whatever opportunities, and I'll use the, just the word resources. Again, this parable can be expanded to mean more than money, but it doesn't mean less than money. This gets after those of us who say, well, I have a hard time submitting my money the way that I budget, the way that I spend, the way that I save, the way that I give, the way that I treat debt, the way that I prioritize. I have a hard time submitting that to God, so I just, I run in the lane of servanthood. I just volunteer a lot. Good for you, but in your opportunities, we honor God with everything, not just the one that's easiest for you. Some of us have an easier time writing a check. I don't know if any of you even know what a check is anymore, or, you know, swiping a card or using... We have an easier time with that than giving our time. At the end of the day, we all have talent given to us. It's been entrusted to us to use and to enjoy, but understand we're going to give an account for what he's done with what he gave us. And disciples understand, I'm a steward. Pastor, nothing you've said has offended me this morning. I'm good with this. Great. Do you know your body is also a gift from God? You want, should we talk about diet and health and no? All right, we'll go to number two. <laughs> it's all his. Disciples of Jesus are motivated. What motivates us to be good stewards? Two things. Faithfulness and an awareness of accountability. Those things work together. I want to be a good steward because I want to be faithful to God. He's been faithful to me. My natural response to him. I want to be faithful to his kingdom, to his work. 
I want people to know about Jesus. I want to live wisely among unbelievers and get into spiritual conversation with them. I, want, I do want to give through my local church and help my local church increase ministry. I want to help missionaries. But I also want to give outside of the local church. I want to be able to help people with my finances. And if you wait until you have enough money that you feel like you can do it, that ain't going to happen. What do you think sharing one another's burdens means? It means being inconvenienced to the degree that they are. I'll leave that for another week. That might be too much for today. But also accountability. I also, I don't want you to be terrified of accountability, but I want you to be sober about it. I want you to know that it's coming. I want you to know what we're going to stand accountable for on the judgment day. And that, it absolutely matters. That God is going to ask you what you've done with what he gave you. And I want you to be able to look for, I don't mean being arrogant or bragging. I just want you to not dread that day. I want you to feel confident because you've prepared. You've been busy. You've been active working for the Lord with whatever he's given to you between now and that day. And number three, I love this part. God gives talents proportionate to our abilities. In other words, listen, there's certain things in life. How wide open do I bring this? I'll save that for another day. But I've had conversations with God before in my life about God, I see this one or that one who has more responsibility than I do. You know, why, what, why do you think of me as less than that? And that's not how God thought of me, but he, he simply said this. He's like, that type of responsibility would destroy you. I thought, you know what? I don't like to hear that, but that's absolutely right. That type of pressure or platform or responsibility, the way that I'm wired, would destroy me. Wouldn't it be just like God to put me in a lane where I still need to lean on him? But he will supply to me the ability that I can thrive in that. I don't have to pocket watch. I can just, I can, I can be content in the lane he's given me to run in. So God does give talents and opportunity proportionate to our abilities. They're going to give you more or less than you can handle. But his rewards are often in excess and disproportionate to our work is awesome. In other words, God says, I'll give you talent in proportionate to your ability, but guess what? I reserve the right to reward you with more than even your performance deserves because I can do that with what's mine. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that good news? Let me pray over you this morning. Thank you for hanging with me if you hung with me this morning. The most important thing, even before we talk about budget and dollars and everything, is, is what is your relationship like with the master? That's the most important thing. That's the most important thing. Do you have a right relationship with God through Jesus? Have you experienced salvation through Jesus, by God's grace, through your faith, that involved you confessing your belief to him, receiving forgiveness, for your sins, having the Holy Spirit come and live in you and in getting you on the spiritual journey. That's the most important thing. That's more important than working, investing, giving. It's more important. It's, in fact, that is the foundation on which all of these things are based. You have to come. That's what this third servant didn't have, didn't get to finish this story, but he was cast out of relationship. His status with the master changed because he didn't, he thought of the master as other than he was. He didn't know who the master really was. didn't have his heart. I have to believe 
that if you're hearing this this morning, that the Holy Spirit's been drawing you close to Jesus today. And I simply want to ask you, are you ready this morning right now to experience salvation through Jesus? Pastor, what I have to do, two things, two things. Believe and repent, that's it. You have to believe you need to be saved, that you're broken, that you're not perfect, that you're only human, that there's a better life you should be living, that you're incapable of living. Bible tells us we recognize this, we're aware of this, and we're all doing different things to deal with that. But are you aware of that? That you need to be saved. Secondly, do you believe Jesus can save you? That he defeated the two things you can't, the sin in our life, and he's defeated death being the final verdict. He defeated sin and death. Because the only person who can save you has to pass those two tests, or they're in the same bucket as you are. Do you believe the account, the historical account of Jesus that he did that? And third, do you believe he will save you if you ask him? that you won't be too far messed up for Jesus. If you believe those things and you're willing to repent, repent means to have a change of mind, to do a 180, to turn away from. What do you mean, what am I turning away from? You're turning away from being your, your owner, your own owner. You're turning away from a life that says, I'm gonna live life the way that I think is best, or the way that I think is right by my own standards. I'm gonna submit my life to conformity to Jesus, which I know sounds crazy, because on the one hand, we want to celebrate, be anything you want to be, however you want to be it. And Jesus says, come unto me and you, I am the way, the truth and life. And we're working on being just like him. And I know it sounds crazy until you meet him. And then it's beautiful. And you say, I want everybody. I want to be around everybody who's like this. Believe and repent. Pastor, that's, that's me. Then all you have to do is confess that to the Lord right now in your own words. Just tell that to him right now. Go ahead. Use your own words. Tell him. You whisper it to him right now. He'll hear you. He'll hear you. He'll forgive you. He'll save you. He'll send his spirit to live inside of you right now. He will begin in this moment to make you a step at a time, a day at a time, gradually a little bit more like Jesus. He's bringing you into a new family. There's not a parents and a grandparents and a kid's table here. We all sit around as brothers and sisters with our big brother, Jesus. Pastor, can you be more specific? Sure. You can pray a simple prayer. Dear Jesus. I know I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I come to you today and I admit I've been living my own way. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. I'm coming to you for forgiveness. I believe, Jesus, you can save me, that you will save me, that you're my substitute. You've paid off my debt. So I receive that today. Holy Spirit, come live in me. Work on the inside of me so that I can be every day a little bit more like Jesus. I turn away from being my own leader and I submit to your lordship. Thank you for saving me. Amen. And keep your eyes closed for just a moment. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to know if you prayed it and you meant it, God did hear it. You are saved. You're saved. You don't have to do another thing. It is important though that you connect to a group of people who are going to come around you and you're going to just join us on this journey. And so I want to ask you to do something brave if you prayed that prayer with me today. You don't have to do this. This is an option. I'm going to count to three. If you prayed that prayer, when I get to three, slip up a hand, make eye contact with me. I'll acknowledge you. You can put your hand right down. I just want to celebrate this moment with you. Anybody pray that prayer with me this morning? One, two, three. Nobody at all. Just want to make sure I look around. Don't miss anybody. Awesome. Praise his name. Heavenly Father, we're all on a journey of understanding what stewardship looks like. So that this week, we're going to think about a couple things. What have you given us? What are we doing with what you've given us? 
has pocket watching impacted the way we view you or others? And probably most importantly, Lord, we're going to think about what would we like our statement of accountability to sound like when we stand before you one day? What would we like to be able to report to you? Lord, move things around in our heart the way that they need to be so that our behaviors line up with our heart. Thank you for being a generous owner who loves to reward your kids. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.